So a little bit of background on our text here this morning. Again, it's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. The title is, as you see it on the screen, See Emmanuel for Details. So what's happened before this, David has just become the king of uh, Israel collective, right? Before it was the, the two tribes of the south um, and in, in Hebron where he was reigning, and now he's, he's king of, uh, of all Israel. He's endeavoring to move the Ark of the Covenant of God, which we read of in the, the five books of Moses, right? That wooden box overlaid with gold that God commanded Moses to build. Um, and then within that were the, the two tablets of stone, right? The Ten Commandments and then the manna. And then also the budding rod, of Aaron, and so we're going to touch on that in a moment. Um, but he's king of Jerusalem now, and, and now he wants to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem, um, to the political and, and soon-to-be religious center of the country. And so that pretty much catches us up to to where we are starting in chapter six. And I'll pray and we'll get right into it. So, Father, again, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. Pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and into each and every one of us. I know we all need to hear from you, Lord. And so just speak to the need in our hearts. We understand, Lord, that this is a spiritual book. It's not like any other book, Lord. And so without your Holy Spirit, we know that we are. Uh, helpless to understand, and so we need you to enlighten this text before us and to, to come now and to teach us these things, that which you would have us to learn, and we thank you in advance. We lay all of our theology and all of our concepts and ideas about you and about who you are uh, just before you, and, and we want to come into agreement with your word and what you say matters, Lord. So, um, yeah, go before us, Lord. Thank you for hearing us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to dive right into it, starting in uh, verse 1, <clears throat> chapter 6, 2 Samuel, and it reads this. Now, <clears throat> David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Balai, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. And so, a bit more context, it's been here for the last 20 or so years, ever since the Philistines brought it up in Second, uh, in 1 Samuel, sorry, chapter 6. Um, and so again, about 20 years So now to bring from there the ark of the God, which the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And we should pause right there because what it's doing is calling the reader to something that's very important and, and of the utmost importance, really drawing our attention to um to a statement that's going to set the stage for our story today. 
more than a symbol of God's presence. The ark, as we find in scriptures, was actually a place where the Lord himself manifested his presence among his people. And we see that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. So that's Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. As well as in Psalm 99, verse 1, and many other places, but um, those two especially. And so the ark was a focal point, if you will, or a, a meeting place for God, for his people. And it was unique in that that's where he chose to, to manifest his presence and to meet with them. In verse 3, we go on to read, And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. And so... God gave very specific, very clear instructions as to how this ark was to be handled, as to how all the instruments in the temple uh, or in the tabernacle, excuse me, were to be handled and how they were supposed to be transported. Some more verses for you to jot down. We don't have time to turn there yet. But Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 tells us who can carry the ark of the covenant. And then in Exodus chapter 25 verses 14 through 15, we learn how the ark of the covenant is supposed to be transported. So again, that's Numbers chapter 4 verses uh, verse 15. And then in Exodus chapter 25 verses 14 through 15, we learn uh, how. And so who was supposed to transport the ark. Well, that would be the Levites, the the priestly tribe, right? And then specifically of those Levites, um, they were the, was the family of uh, Koath. And then the how would be these uh, golden rings, which were attached to the ark and which poles were driven through. And uh, the, the priests, four of them would, would lift the ark. And, and that was how God chose to transport it. And and so very clear, very specific, and not in just those two places, but throughout the scriptures and the, the Torah, the, the Lord is very clear, he's very specific, and this is the way. And so it's the, the Levites from the, tribe of, uh, from the family of Koath, and then also those rings. And so um, that's, that's what he said concerning its, trans, its transportation. And so... Something we learn, we find in the book of Genesis very early on in the scriptures, is that man alone is created in the image and in the likeness of God and is uniquely called to bear his presence, right? Not oxen, as, as we see here, and not uh, chimpanzees, as, as many people out there believe, but it's man, we learn that right off the bat in Genesis, who's created in his image, and in his likeness. And so I think there's something very special there. It, it, it speaks of uh, intimacy, really, and, and relationship. There's nothing mechanical about it. It's, it's 
men whom he formed in his image, bearing his name, bearing his presence. Um, and, and so there's a, a personal touch to that. There, there is no wagon prescribed, right? Um, which is what we see them trying to do here in verse 3. And in the same way, we as the body of Christ, we are his primary means of transportation, right? The Lord indwelling within his people, and, and that's us, right? If we've put our faith in Christ, and so we are, as the church, as the body of Messiah, his primary means of transportation, interesting. Huh? So we're channels of his grace, we're conduits of his, his love to the world around us, right? That's how we designed it. And that's how he wants it to be. And so can turn with me to First Peter chapter two, verses nine through ten. It's first Peter chapter two, verses nine through ten. The Holy Spirit through Paul says this, but you, that is us, the church, right, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And in verse 10, for you were once, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so the answer is right there in verse 10. It's because we have personally experienced the mercy and grace of God. And so to God, that enables, that, that qualifies us, he says, to, to then take him and to relay that same grace and mercy to those around us. And so um, we read here that we've been chosen to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that's exactly why, because we have been called out of darkness and, and now we get to share our testimony with the world around us. Amen. A similar passage is Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it's that we have this treasure within these earthen vessels that the excellency, the greatness of the power may be of God and not of us. And it's because we are so simple um, and, and it's so obviously not from us that the glory is then ascribed to God as it should be, right? And that's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, the, the treasure, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, the gospel. And so, and so there's all of that, all of, all of those reasons as to why they should have known better. But it's interesting because Although they were given such clear instructions, again, throughout the, the, the Torah, those first um, five books, and then beginning in, in Numbers and onward, the, the law of God concerning his art, concerning those instruments used in the tabernacle, they had all of that going for them. But what we find instead they do is what the Philistines did in First Samuel chapter 6. 
because when they captured the ark, they decided after after it wasn't working out for them, right? They were breaking out in boils and and uh, all, all kinds of things. That they would send it back, and so they did so on a cart, and it worked. And uh, and so no doubt it was easier, right, to transport the ark of God on a on a cart. I don't know how much it weighed. Exactly, you could probably find that number, but but it was a, a labor, right, to, to move that thing 13 miles again from where they were in starting to Jerusalem, which was their end goal. Much easier, it would be much more efficient, right? Perhaps they thought to themselves, those commands that Moses received, they're outdated or they're irrelevant to us, right? They didn't have wagons like we do. And so they are, in a sense, trying to reinvent what God had already prescribed, reinventing this, this wheel of God's holy standard. But you cannot do that. And you're going to find out in just a moment the consequences for their disobedience. And so the difference is, the difference between the Philistines, what they did in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and what the the Israelites are attempting to do now is that the Philistines were not God's chosen people, and the Israelites are, right? And we, body of Christ, are God's chosen people in that same way. And so for the, the Philistines who did not have the, the oracles of God, right, they could not, they were not held uh, accountable or responsible um, for what they did in mistransporting the ark, but but it's a different story for the Israelites, right? It, ignorance is bliss, but knowledge brings accountability. And so when you know something, you're then held accountable to that thing you know. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12, verse 28. It's a, whom much is given, much is required. And so for us who who as believers living in a free country, right, we're not really under that much persecution. Um, we have been given much, and I don't think anyone here would disagree with that, right? We, we are a very blessed people, um, but with that comes a great responsibility, something we should not take lightly. And so we're held accountable to the word of God. Not simply did they have the word of God, which again reiterated throughout those first few books, the scriptures they had, but they also had an experience, that same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 6, by the end, when the card is returned, a multitude peeks inside and then they're, they're struck down by the Lord for their irreverence. And so not only did they have the word of God, which clearly prohibited the, the irreverent transportation of the ark, but they also had an experience which dated back only 20 or so years ago in which they could say, yeah, we, we know how it worked out for them and it didn't work out so well. And so the word of God and their experience. And so there's a principle here, and I think it's this, that your knowledge 
and experience amount to nothing unless they are applied, right? We have the know-how. Many of us have experience, some more than others, but unless that knowledge is applied, right, the right application of knowledge, which is wisdom, it profits us nothing, In Exodus chapter 12, <clears throat> this is the first Passover on the eve of the 10th and final plague of Egypt. The, the Lord was going to judge the, the house of Pharaoh and, and all of those in Egypt by um, slaying the firstborn son. And so God commanded Moses to instruct the people, right, Take the blood of a spotless lamb, apply it to the doorposts of your home, and you'll be saved. And it's pretty straightforward, and of course, we know that that was a foreshadow of Christ, right? And so, those who were living at that time, who had experienced all other nine plagues of Egypt, who saw what the Lord was capable of doing, they had the knowledge, they had the experience of what was happening around them, it wasn't until or unless they applied the blood to their home that they would be saved. And so, um, interestingly enough, too, um, the chet, the eighth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, um, is shaped in an identical way to a door, right? Door frame, and, and it's symbolic in Hebrew of sin. And so, by applying the blood of the spotless lamb to your sin. That is the only way that, uh, that the, the family would be saved, right? And that that firstborn would be delivered. And pretty awesome picture. And so there is no substitute for obedience. You can have the know-how, you can even have the experience, but all the knowledge and all the experience in the world is not going to substitute for the application of that in obedience to God's word. In verse number four, we'll move on. It says, So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. A few times it mentions this hill, and so all I would say here is this, don't let new territory change your course of action, your course of direction as we navigate through life, seasons which are new to us. Don't allow that new territory to influence your commitment to follow the Lord. Again, see Emmanuel for details when we enter into these new seasons of life where uh, the territory is, is new to us. That's, that's what the manual is for. And it's for us to seek it out. And so in verse 5, it says, Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, Castanets and symbols. 
And so David, as, as well as all those who are worshiping with him there, are sincere, no doubt, in their worship, but as sincere as they may be, they are sincerely wrong, or you could even say they are as wrong as sin and what it is they're doing, which is, again, contrary to what God had clearly articulated for them concerning, again, the transportation, the ark, the covenant. It wasn't a mere um, piece of tabernacle decoration. It was where his presence actually manifested itself. Worship, of course, we know is more than just music. Worship, in the context of Scripture, actually what we find in Genesis chapter 22, it's the first mention of worship, is obedience. And worship is costly. It's us submitting and subjecting ourselves to God, giving Him our best, right, our all, and uh, laying that before His feet. And so worship you want to boil it down at its core, it's obedience, and it's costly. It's costly obedience, not mere dancing, it's not mere singing. Those are just expressions of worship and often help to get us to that place of submitting ourselves before the Lord. But if we stop with music, we sorely miss the whole of it. In verse 6, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Again, Numbers 4.15 made it very clear. A number of other scriptures you can cite do not touch the ark. It's for the Levites. It's for those of the house of Koath. Um, every warning, every opportunity, very clear, very specific. As his motives were good, no doubt he was trying to do a good thing, right? Stabilize the ark. Let's not make a scene. Don't let it slip out of this new cart, which we've prepared for it. And so while his motives may have been good, something that we understand is that good motives are not enough. The scriptures make that very clear. That motives in and of themselves are not enough. And they cannot be. He's trying to give God a hand, right? And, and so many of us still to this day, though we are in Christ and though we have um, surrendered our lives to him, try to give God a hand, and, and it doesn't turn out so well for us, does it? Um, that's what the world is trying to do as well. You know, the, the Christ plus theology, right? But it doesn't work. It doesn't save. Many folks mean well, as, as it did, with the best of intentions, but motives must be coupled, they must be accompanied by actions, right? It's not just the motive, it's not even just the action, but, but both must go 
together. And so in John chapter 6, 29, this is an important verse. Um, they come to Jesus and say, what is the work of God that we can do? What, what can we do? And Jesus tells them, the work of God is that you believe on him who he has sent, i.e. that you believe in me, that you believe what I'm telling you about myself and about what I've come to do. And so the work, if you will, the action is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 8, what more is keeping the fruit of repentance? It's an ongoing thing, right? It's not repent once, it's repentance, and it's a continual thing. Matthew 8, 3 makes that clear. And again, throughout the scriptures, it's not a one-time thing. And speaking of actions, John 15, it's that we bear fruit. It's that we abide in Christ and that he abides in us and that we bear fruit. So that is the actions. That, those are the actions that we should be um, about, the fruit that we should be producing, right? Belief, repentance, and, and the fruit of the Spirit we find in Galatians. Perhaps as it felt comfortable with the ark it had been in his father's home for the last 20 or so years. And so maybe he thought that he knew better, again, that the commands of God were outdated, perhaps irrelevant to uh, his circumstance, justifying his actions. And, and we do that all the time, do we not? We must not mistake God's patience for passivity. God is long-suffering, which means he suffers long with us and for those who have not received his son. But we must not ever make the mistake of believing that it's due to his approval of what we're doing. Not mistaking his patience for passivity. And so how serious is God about sin? It's a question. How serious is God about sin? And the answer we find as we look in the scriptures is that he is dead serious about sin. He is absolutely, quite literally dead serious about sin. Romans chapter 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. What you earn for yourself by sinning is death. But it goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life <clears throat> in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And so God is dead serious about sin, serious enough to send his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sin. That's how serious. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is God, came in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He became a man that he might enable men to become sons of God. John 1.12, for as many as who would receive him, or, or who, would, who would receive him, to them he gave the right to become what? Sons of God to as many as who would believe in his name. More often than not, we need to be 
reminded rather than taught. We have the information. We should know better. We do know better, but we need to be reminded of these things. That's exactly why we meet uh, in, in a setting like this and in, in home groups and in uh, personal devotions, right? What you do around your table with your family, it's that we're reminding ourselves of these truths. Verse 8, And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Piraz Uzzah to this day, which literally means the, the breaking through of Uzzah. David was angry at the Lord, but he should have been upset here at his own oversight. And so often we foolishly become upset at God because God is faithful to his word. And when we're walking in, a, in disobedience to that word and then God shows up faithful, it, it usually knocks us off our guard, right? But, but God is faithful to do what he says he will do. In verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day. And this is not the, the fear of the Lord that we read of in scriptures. This isn't the, so much the, the reverential awe and respect to him, but, but he's frustrated, right? And he's upset because, because of what's happened. Really, he has no one to blame but himself for organizing this, this whole event so poorly. Proverbs 10, verse 27, you can jot it down. It says that the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the wicked man, his life is cut short. This was no exercise of wisdom, but of disobedience. David says here, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so he's angry in verse 8, and now in 9, he's afraid of the Lord. He asks this question, well, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And the answer is very simple. It's by simply obeying the word of the Lord, right? And that's the answer for all of our problems. It's by obeying the word of the Lord. Lord, how do I, how do I get out of this mess? Or, Lord, what's there for me to do next? And it's, it's that you obey what what is written for us sadly so many of us fall short of the blessing of God's presence because we fail to obey what he has commanded us see this illustrated in this story this question should not have been, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? But, but really, how could I have been so foolish in, in, in missing so poorly here on this, this assignment? Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry, right? But when we're operating contrary to scriptures, we're, we tend to ask the wrong questions. We tend to ask foolish, foolish questions,
David's asking this question in verse 9. Again, all the answers are in the book. See manual for details. It's all right here. This is our roadmap. This is our instruction manual for life. God's given it to us. It's that we take advantage of the wisdom before us. You can turn to, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Beautiful promise here, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it says this, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And the key there is through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence through Christ. We have all things needed pertaining to life and godliness through Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful passage. In verse 10, And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So he's essentially giving up here, throwing in the towel. And much like what Cain did in, in Genesis chapter 4, right? His offering um, is rejected by God. And he's seeking, he's wanting the approval and the blessing of God. But he's trying to do it his own way and in his own strength. And the Lord says, yeah, I don't do that. And he didn't like it. He, he, he gave up. He then went on to, to murder his brother, right? And so it's that we worship the Lord, that we worship Yahweh, his way, and not ours, but as he's prescribed us to. This is the case with believers and non-believers alike. I will say, well, if I have to blank, then forget it. If I have to, to confess my need for a savior, then forget it. I'm not into that. Or if I have to forgive this person, forget it. Right? If I have to to fill in the blank, whatever is relevant to you, um, we can find ourselves very quickly in the same trap. The majority of our frustrations in life come by neglecting to obey His word. In verse 11, thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Obed-Edom, as we find out in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, was in fact a Levite, and he was of the family of Goath. And so God is perfectly consistent in what he says concerning his ark, concerning his people, the caring for that. He's faithful to judge and to bless. Um, great story in Joshua chapter 8. Right? The two mountains, the, the blessings and the cursings. And God is, is faithful to do both. And he redeemed us, he says in Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse in our place. So see Joshua chapter 8. 
Verse 12, and it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so like David, we should want to be where the blessings are. And so question for us this morning is, do we? Do we want to be in that place? And if so, then what are we doing about it? Right? I love what it says there at the end of verse 12, and David went, um, sorry, at the end of, of verse 11, three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Okay, and then in 12, it says, and all that belongs to him on account of the ark for his namesake. It was on account of his presence in, in a home where the glory of God is honored and is esteemed. And the passage you can research on your own time, it's Ephesians chapter 1, um, specifically verses 3 through 14. It tells us of all the blessings we have in Christ, and you can make a list of all that belongs to us if we are in him and and it's just amazing. And the key there is in him. Obed-Edom and his household was blessed on account of the ark of God, on account of the presence of God, handled with respect in his home. And so the same is true for us. The blessings of God, they're ours. The promises, they're ours in Christ Jesus. They're yes and amen. And 13, and so it was when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ark or an ox and a fatling. And in 14, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And in 15, so David and all his house, and all, sorry, the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And so what changed in David's disposition is that he sought the manual. He saw the manual for details and, and he saw the blessings that Obed-Edom was receiving. And he said, hey, I, I want some of that. I want that for my household. I want that for my kingdom. And so these are the, the steps that David took. He saw, he observed, he got into the word, he read and, and then he's able to do it in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God. This teaches us that God's work done God's way produces God's blessing. In First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 27, uh, we actually learn there that he's wearing a linen ephod with the priests would have worn over his, his uh, royal or his fine linens. And so no, David was not naked. He was not in his undergarments. He was actually wearing at least two layers that we read of in scriptures. Again, it's first Chronicles chapter 15, verse 27. It's probably over his, fine linens, he was wearing this 
this priestly garment, right? To uh, identify and to, to associate himself with the people of God. And so, um, interestingly enough, right on, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would strip himself of his royal robes or his, his pre- high priestly robes, and he would dress in the linen ephod because it was quiet that day and because he was drawing no attention to himself as he made atonement for the, the sins of the nation. This reminds us of our king who laid aside his royal robes, right, Jesus, to wrap himself in humanity, to put on human skin. Again, all God becoming all man in order that we may be robed in his righteousness. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. I know you know it, but read it because... If we had more time, we would. And that's the mind that should be in us, that humility that Christ demonstrated. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, verses 5 through 11. One last scripture we'll look at is in Isaiah 61, verse 10. So Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. It reads this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Like that of a a young married couple, so has he wrapped us with a robe of righteousness and it's his righteousness 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's always in him. Everything hinges upon our being in Christ, our believing and our receiving. It's what enables us to become sons and daughters of God. And so just two points in closing, a little bit of application for us. What do we do with this information? Uh, Hopefully something, right? Point number one, seek out before you step out. If David had only sought the Lord like he usually did, as as was his habit, the, the death, the humiliation of the 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 episode in in chapter 6, could have been avoided. And so for us to seek out the counsel of the Lord, to seek Emmanuel, God with us, God, what do you have for me today? What do you have for me these next 15 minutes? And, 
And the, the transformation that we could see if we, if we really were a people who were fixed on, on asking the Lord, Lord, what, what do you have for me? Um, what is your will? And it's right here. None of us should be confused as to what the will of God is for our life. It's that you believe on him who he has sent, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then keep with repentance and then you bear fruit. And it's this Holy Spirit inside of us that's, that's doing all the work. And it's what Christ already did for us. And so, you know, the will of God is right here. The manual, it's right here. We all have one. And if you don't, then come and see me. <laughs> or see anyone, they'll get you one. And so whether or not you think you know what you're doing, see Emmanuel for details. David thought he knew what he was doing. He thought he knew what he was going to accomplish. He was sorely wrong as it died, and it was terrible. So whether or not you think you know what you're doing, see Emmanuel for details. Seek out before you step out into his blessing is worth the march, that 13-mile march David and his people made to retrieve the ark of God, the blessing of God's presence within their midst. The blessing of God is worth the march. Looks like stepping out in faith and in obedience. And sometimes, you know, if that means taking one step backward, so that we can take two steps forward in him, then so be it, because it's worth it. And if it's at the expense of our humiliation, then praise the Lord, because that's what he uses to conform us into his image. That is his will for our lives. I can say that about each and every person here, and each and every person out there is that we become more like Jesus Christ. One quick closing thought. Um, I don't know how long Legos have been around for. I don't know when they were invented. I know they were before my time, and, and I know I enjoyed um, growing up with them. And they all come with a manual, right? And I know some pretty clever, clever people. I don't know anyone who can assemble a, a sophisticated Lego set without that manual. I don't care how clever you think you are, some of the sets that they're putting out these days, you cannot build without that manual. And, and I need a manual for just about everything I do. If you're car savvy, you don't with a new car. If, if you know appliances, you can bypass the manual. But there are certain things in life that we cannot do without a manual. And, and this, this, again, this is our manual. And so to, to uh, pull from, from what C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, uh, the automobile, it's, it's made to run off petrol, right? Gasoline, fuel, now they're making cars that can run off of, of electricity and so forth. And the human machine is made to run off of God, and God designed it that way for a purpose. And so... And, and so that's what we should be most concerned with. How do we best operate? How do we drive this machine? And it's by adhering to his word. And so we have the manual. We have 
everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Will we take advantage of it? I pray that we do. Um, We need to be reminded of these things. And so, so Lord, we, we do thank you that you have given us everything that we need to to please you and to to obey you lord your grace is sufficient for us and we believe that your power is made perfect in our weakness so for those of us lord i know myself included who have strayed from this manual your living and active word Lord, would you bring us back and remind us of the importance of of what you came to bring and of the the gospel, really, Lord, that we are transporting. Pray that you would bring that to the forefront of our minds, and and we thank you, Lord, that it's it's you who work in us both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And it's all by your grace, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. May we not leave here without applying that blood to our lives, Lord. Thank you for hearing us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.